This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. We have been journeying through the scriptures starting at the beginning of Genesis, and last week we looked at the famous story of Noah and the flood. God starts over. He's determined, though, to have a people who are devoted to him living in his land under his rule. And he starts over with Noah and his family. In between chapter 9 and the story we're going to look at today, we, we begin to see that things start to spiral out of control once again. And it's kind of exemplified in the, the story of the Tower of Babel. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Genesis 11. I'm going to read this brief story. Genesis 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. As, uh, as children, maybe you understood this story to mean that the problem was these people were trying to build a tower that reached to God. We're going to dive into this and realize that's not what's happening here. Upon further investigation, there's some subtleties in the story that we cannot miss. We're going to look today at what this story has to say about the social problem of humanity, the psychological problem of humanity, and what the gospel solution is. The social problem, the psychological problem, and the gospel solution. First, the social problem. Verse 4, it said, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So the world's population wants to erect a city. And notice one of the motivations for doing so lies in a fear. The fear of being scattered over the face of the earth. So the construction of a city would enable them to centralize now, why is that such a bad thing? I don't know that conventional wisdom leads us to conclude that wanting to lay down roots and centralize is wrong, but God clearly is not a supporter of this project because he ends up halting it. So why does the desire to centralize receive such a sharp rebuke from God? 
Well, we need to read the story as any story in the scriptures within the context of the broader story. Ideally, you would start with what's behind it and then work to what's in front of it. When we do that, we read some key verses that may give us hints as to why their desire to hunker down is a problem. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, this is to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. God's design was for humanity to fill the earth. In fact, in the context of, of that, it was God's design that Adam and Eve expand the borders of Eden until the, the whole earth was one gigantic garden of Eden, the dwelling place of God where human beings walked and talked with God. After Noah and his family get off the boat, God reiterated this. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. And there it is. Fill the earth. God's plan from the very beginning was for human beings to fill the earth. He did not want them to cluster. He didn't, he didn't want them to centralize. He didn't want them to hunker down. God's mission, his plan, his vision is for human beings to scatter, to disperse. He wanted them to spread. Not for the sake purely of occupying land, but for the sake of large numbers of image bearers living under God's rule. Babel, therefore, is a rejection of this vision. It's a rejection of this plan. And frankly, nothing much has changed since, since Babel. <laughs> We are still prone as human beings today to cluster rather than scatter. And we do it corporately as well as individually. We do it corporately as well as individually. Corporately, where do we see this proneness to clustering? Let's start with the church. I remember listening to an interview with a church planter. Some years ago, he helped start a church in one of our nation's largest metropolitan areas. And in the interview, he was asked about the, 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 the early stages of this planning process to start the church. And he said that he and the core group who, who launched the church said that, quote, we didn't want to be a church only for ourselves. We wanted to be a church for the city. That phrase caught my attention a church only for ourselves. I wonder how many churches out there look at themselves as a church only for themselves. In other words, how many churches are reenacting Babel? How many churches, rather than making themselves a church for their communities, for their cities, are making themselves a church only for those who are already part of the club? How many churches are corporately clustering rather than scattering? A few years ago, Tom Rainer wrote a short book, an enlightening book entitled Autopsy of a Deceased Church. This morbid title is an incredibly revealing book. Uh, Rainer autopsied 14 churches. He studied 14 churches that died, that had to close their doors and stop doing ministry because he wanted to try to find out the COD 
the cause of death. One of the commonalities that he discovered was a resistance to spreading in these churches. That is, these churches had become prone to clustering. They were churches only for themselves. Only for those who were already inside the club. That's who they were there for. They weren't interested in being a blessing to those outside the walls of the church. They were not interested in seeing lost people come to faith. They weren't interested in seeing their churches grow. They hunkered down. And they closed their doors. Or might we interpret it as God scattered them. While every church has people in it who gravitate towards clustering, I'm, I'm grateful to God that that's not the dominant, doesn't seem to be the dominant DNA of ABC. Our church has a great history already of scattering, starting new churches, sending missionaries like Dave and Sarah Matthews out to the field, initiating something as ambitious as the student union. Love to see more of that. I think it's one of the metrics of success for a church. How many missionaries did you raise up within your ranks and send out? How many pastors did you raise up within your ranks and send out? Did you start churches? That's what it means to scatter. We see this proneness to clustering not only corporately, but individually as well. We do have a tendency, I think, to cluster relationally as individuals, don't we? You know what I mean by that? When was the last time you introduced yourself to someone you don't know? It's tough to do. When was the last time you tried to forge a relationship with someone you're not friends with? Risky. Let me encourage you to go after that. To reenact Babel means we stay put relationally. We stay with the familiar, those we know, the faces we know, the names we know. We stay put. We don't seek to get to know a name or a face we haven't met before. Now, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's, maybe it's Wisconsin. Maybe it's a German thing. Maybe it's a Midwest thing. I don't know. But we're prone to being cliquish within our culture here. Um, so listen, if you've been a part of ABC for five years or more, I want to say something to you. It is difficult for people who come to this church from the outside to get embedded here. Okay? We're going to define reality here. It's difficult for people from the outside to get embedded here. You know what I mean by that? I don't mean we don't do a good job welcoming them at the door. That's not what I mean. We do a good job of that. A very good job of that. It is challenging, though, once they've been greeted and warmly welcomed, for them to proceed much further than that. That's not unique to Alliance Bible Church. I had the same problem in my last church. Talking to some of the Milwaukee area pastors, they've got the same problem in their churches. I don't know. Maybe it's a Midwest thing. 
But if you have been here for five or more years, I want to put this burden of responsibility on your lap. It's up to you to change this. Okay? The new person coming through the door is not going to change this for you. You have to do that. Make it a habit, weekly, monthly, I don't know, just, just something that's regularly occurring for you to introduce yourself to someone you've not met and then, making a mental note, follow up. Follow up. Grab coffee, lunch. Make it a point to see them the next Sunday in church and say hi to them. Invite them to a, a study you're a part of. Forge a friendship with someone you're not currently friends with. There's another way we individually cluster. How about in our neighborhoods? How many of your neighbors know your name? How many of your neighbors know your name? Here's an idea. Go for walks in your neighborhood. Particularly during the summer when people are more likely to be outside. Use that as an opportunity to intentionally go introduce yourself to somebody in your neighborhood. Our family has had some degree of success with that uh, this past summer. Keep in mind, the goal here is more than getting to know a name or a face. The goal here is more than building a new friendship. The goal here started in Eden. God's people living in God's place under God's rule. That's the goal. That's the goal. Second, the psychological problem. So the social problem of Babel is resistance to scattering, proneness to clustering. The psychological problem is seen in the same verse. Let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves so that we may make a name for ourselves. You see that? Otherwise, we would be scattered over the face of the whole world. They want to make a name for themselves. Their, des their desires for fame, for reputation, they want to be noticed. Now, traditionally, the story of the Tower of Babel revolves around constructing this big tower that reaches to God. That's not the primary problem. Both the city and the tower are visible symbols of an invisible problem. The desire to cluster, and thus a rejection of God's mission, and a desire to make a name for themselves. And once again, nothing has changed. Corporately, we do this. Individually, we do this. Corporately, we try to make a name for ourselves. Individually, we try to make a name for ourselves. How do we do that? Well, let's start corporately. Where do we see this desire to make a name for ourselves corporately? Within some Christian circles, there is an unhealthy preoccupation with the greatness of our country, a desire to see it remain great or become greater. There is a fine line between something good and something ultimate. I've mentioned this before. The heart of idolatry is turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. This is one example. wish some Christians would put half the energy they do into contributing to the greatness of their country into highlighting the greatness of the gospel and the churches the gospel builds. 
No nation, no nation is a savior. That is for Jesus alone. Of course, this corporate desire to make a name for oneself is seen in churches. I wonder at times if, if some churches are more interested in converting people to attending church than converting them to the gospel. Some churches seem to be more prone to, to getting people to love their church than love the Savior who called that church into existence. I don't mind of people speak, if people speak highly of their churches, but I hope in the same breath they're speaking even more highly of the Jesus they worship there. Making a church's name great is an idolatrous pursuit. The corporate desire to make a name for oneself can also be seen at the level of ministry within each church. Sometimes we get on the bandwagon of a certain ministry out there that has been created for local churches to use. We get on the bandwagon and suddenly all the vocabulary surrounds the name, the image, the branding of the ministry rather than Jesus and the gospel. This desire to make a name for ourselves doesn't just happen corporately. It happens individually too. We use our careers to make a name for ourselves. We use our marriage, parenting, to make a name for ourselves. We use aspects to everyday life all around us to enhance our reputations, to help people notice us. Christina Kelly was a successful editor for various magazines tailored to young women. Some years ago, she wrote this. She says, why do we crave celebrities? Here's my theory. To be human is to feel inconsequential. So we worship celebrities and we seek to look like them. All the great things they have done, we identify with in order to escape our own inconsequential lives. But it's so dumb with this stream of perfectly airbrushed, implanted, liposuction stars, you would have to be an absolute powerhouse of self-esteem already, not to feel totally inferior before them. So we worship them because we feel inconsequential. But doing it makes us feel even worse. We make them stars, but then their fame makes us feel insignificant. I am part of this whole process as an editor. No wonder I feel soiled at the end of the day. Kelly is saying we all feel inconsequential, unimportant, insignificant. Popular culture says this is how you fix this. Have perfect skin. Get thin. Look like the celebrities. And she concludes this doesn't work. Be successful in your career and you'll get noticed. You make a name for yourself. Raise the finest kids imaginable, and you'll be admired. You make a name for yourself. Champion a ministry in your church to the public praise of your followers, and you'll be highly regarded. 
You'll make a name for yourself. You see how we use aspects to everyday life to try to get others to notice us? There's a detail in the text that's important to notice. Look at verse three. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. If you ever come across a verse and you say, hmm, why is that there? That is the best possible question you could ask. That's not a construction detail, just in case you want to make your own. You know what the verse is saying? We will make our own materials. Okay? We've got this. God, we don't need the stone you created. We've got it. We'll make our own. Of course, the irony of this is even, that, even in that day, naturally occurring stone was known to have been more durable than man-made bricks. The project is doomed to fail at the outset because what they're using to enhance their reputation is prone to crumble. Using your career to enhance your reputation is prone to crumble. Using your parenting skills to enhance your reputation is prone to crumble. Using your ministry success to enhance your reputation is prone to crumble. How long do you want to go? How many more can we come up with? These kinds of self-elevating projects are doomed to fail. Why? The story of Babel, there's one thing that's, that's, that we can take away from that. God won't let it succeed. He's not going to let it happen. We see that in the story. We see that in Isaiah 42, 8. The Lord says, I am the Lord. That is my name. Name is a theme in the Babel story. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. Not on my watch. God will not let that succeed. It's doomed to fail. So what's the gospel solution to this? Look at verse five. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. If anybody ever says to you there's nothing funny in the Bible, draw their attention to this verse. It's satire. Did you know satire was in the Bible? It's satire. This pantheon, this ginormous edifice they have constructed, God has to get down on all fours with a magnifying glass to see. Verse 7, come, let us go down and confuse their language so they do not understand each other. So what's the solution to the social and psychological problem they have? Well, God has to come down and wreck it. That's what happened. He comes down and he wrecks it. If clustering is a problem for you, God has to come down and wreck that. If using mud-baked bricks to make a name for yourself is a problem for you, God has to come down and wreck it. Years after Babel, 
years after Babel, God came down again in the form of a human being to wreck our clustering and name-making pursuits. If the social problem of clustering is an issue for you, if the, if the psychological problem of making a name for yourself is an issue, you need Jesus to come down and wreck it. Now, how does he do that? How does he do that? Well, like it or not, you're, you're about to see Christmas commercials hitting the airwaves. In fact, we started here. <laughs> Christmas is the anti-babble. Christmas is the anti-babble. The social problem at Babel is clustering rather than spreading. At Christmas, the Godhead dispersed rather than clustered. If at Christmas the Godhead of Father, Son, Holy Spirit decided to cluster, so there would be no more Christmas. There would be no salvation for you and me. If Father, Son, and Holy Spirit decided to cluster, you and I would have hell to pay. Jesus declustered to save you. So the gospel solution to the problem of clustering rather than dispersing begins with the incarnation. Jesus left the comfort and familiarities of heaven to be a blessing to you. Part of being a disciple of Jesus is to follow in his footsteps, to decluster in order to be a blessing to others. This is what Dave and Sarah Matthews have done. Countless others have done. They've declustered to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and be a blessing to others. The psychological problem at Babel is making a name for yourself. Trying to enhance your reputation yourself is like using mud-baked bricks to build a city. It's doomed to fail from the beginning. And in the end, it only results in God having to get on all fours with a magnifying glass for him to be able to see what you've constructed for yourself. Greatness does await God's people, okay? That's clear. Greatness does await God's people. A great name awaits God's people. But it's not us who do that. God does that. We'll see that with Abraham. We'll see that with David. We see that in the book of Revelation. Chapter 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 tr crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name, his name, will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. And they will reign forever and ever. Does that sound like greatness to you? It sure does. 
It does not come by trying to make a name for yourself. It comes by having the name of the lamb on our foreheads. The mention of lamb implies the death of Christ. Jesus died so that one day you will reign with him forever and ever. Having the name of the lamb on your forehead is a reference to our preoccupation with Jesus. God makes your name great as you elevate and draw attention to the life and death of Jesus Christ. This is what's so upside down and backwards about the kingdom compared to life in this world. Drawing attention to ourselves through our careers, our parenting skill, our ministry prowess, our looks, our athletic ability, or whatever, whatever we think, that's the ticket to to feeling consequential. But God didn't hardwire us that way. The ticket to feeling consequential actually comes by drawing attention to Jesus, what he's like, what he's done. Look up here. The more the pronouns I and me dominate your conversations, the more empty your life's gonna be. The more the pronouns I and me dominate your conversations, the more empty your life is gonna be. The more the name of Jesus is on your lips, the more fulfilled your life will be. Jeff Vanderstelt tells a story of a young woman who spent a summer at his church interning. And at the end of their time, they created a gathering for her and they they had a, a moment there where they had some time to reflect on on her internship with the church. And one of the leaders asked specifically what was different from what she had expected. She paused, and then this is what she said. She said, well, this might sound like a little strange, but the thing that most surprised me was how much you all talk about Jesus. I mean, I know we believe in Jesus, and this is supposed to be all about Jesus, but you guys talk about him all the time. Every day, every meeting, every situation, you're always talking about Jesus. At first, I just thought you were strange. Then I started to think maybe something was wrong with me, that I didn't really know and love Jesus. The church I came from talks about Jesus here and there, especially when we have an evangelistic Sunday. However, most of the teaching is about us, about what we should do and how we need to change. We might hear three keys on how to better manage our time or five principles for engaging and serving, but we don't hear Jesus preached every week through every Bible text, and we certainly don't talk about Jesus whenever we get together. To be honest, while I was with you all, I began to wonder if I was even saved. Well, I'm not sure how to say this, but I think I finally came to really know and love Jesus this summer with you. It was just impossible to get away from hearing how great Jesus is with all of you. You long for that? This is why our vision is to captivate generations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'd love for that to become a characteristic of our culture here. Whenever new people come here, they're saying, man, these people talk about Jesus all the time. You can't get away from him. 
I don't want to captivate people with Alliance Bible Church. I don't want to captivate people with a pastor, with a leader, with a ministry, with a group. I don't want to captivate people with a particular way of doing church. That's just building a city with mud-baked bricks. I hope and prayer for you, for us, is that we would become obsessed with Jesus. That we would come to regard Jesus so highly that what dominates our conversations is him and what he's done. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We're tempted to settle for cheap substitutes. Protect us from that by showing us the surpassing worth of knowing you. Save us from self-preoccupation. Jesus, I pray we would be a church truly captivated with the good news of who you are, the life you've lived, the death you've died for us. May we become a Jesus-obsessed church. I pray that that would be demonstrated in our conversations, in our actions, in our thinking. We pray this to your glory, to your fame, to your reputation. We pray these things. Amen.